Hello, baseball fans, and welcome to Sully Baseball. This is the podcast where there is no offseason. We talk about baseball 52 weeks out of the year. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully. This episode will be released on the 19th day of December 2017 from a Sully Baseball studio in Pasadena, California, overlooking the historic Rose Bowl. We're winding down the year, we're winding down the calendar year, and I wanted to talk a little bit, as everyone in all of baseball wants to talk about right now, and that is the state of the Miami Marlins. You know, just last week I did a podcast where I basically praised Marlin fans, saying that they are the most devoted fans and and the ones that deserve in some ways our most sympathy because they get dragged through the mud by their team and by their reputation amongst uh, throughout baseball as basically being non-existent, not showing up to the games. And it's a rough go at it as for the second time in uh, 11 years, the Marlins have traded away a once in a generation player for not much in return. And the song goes on in Miami, which should be one of the great baseball markets in all of major league baseball. Instead, they're the Marlins, but Hey, you know, Instead of having just me sitting in Pasadena, a Red Sox fan living in Los Angeles County, yap about it like I know anything about the Marlins, let's bring in someone who knows something about the Marlins, and that's my guest today. My guest today is Eli Sussman, who is the editor of FishStripes.com, which is, if not the Marlins fan blog of record, it darn well should be, and he knows... You know, he knows more about the Marlins than you. And if you're the front office of the Miami Marlins listening to that, I am absolutely positive of that statement. In fact, I just finished reading one of his latest pieces for SB Nation's Fake Teams, which is the MLB preview of the Miami Marlins, which is a article that is just dripping with sarcasm. Uh, but let's not yap any further let's talk about the man who knows his marlins eli sussman eli welcome to the sully baseball podcast thank you for having me sully and you should be thanking the marlins for doing something different this offseason that at least gives the rest of the world something to talk about even when the rest of the teams aren't as active on free agency and in the trade market they've been uh they've been going about it their own way well i'm not one for predictions but i'm going to make one right now uh, Don Mattingly, the manager of the Marlins, has never been involved in a World Series. He's had horrible luck in terms of his career completely fit perfectly in that window where the Yankees couldn't make the playoffs. And then when he returned as a coach, fit perfectly in that window where they couldn't win a pennant. And then managed the Dodgers just in time when he left to watch them get to the World Series. I'm going to go out and say that in 2018, he's still not going to be involved in a World Series. That's my bold prediction, that Don Mattingly, the manager of the Marlins, will not be involved in a World Series this year. Yeah, and I mean, to add to that on Mattingly, also losing the job with the Dodgers a couple years ago, right, as they're heading into this window where they're privileged oh, yeah. World Series contenders. So it's been tough luck on him, but he's he's one of the most positive guys in the game. So I think he'll stay upbeat, even if um, he's managing whatever this 
team is going to be this year and for the foreseeable future. Okay, so let me just get a few things down with you first. You are the editor of FishStripes.com, and I've known – I've been familiar with FishStripes for about a decade now. And how did you get involved with Fish Stripes, and how did you get involved with being a Marlins person? Well, I'm originally from New York, and uh, that's where I'm back now, just outside of New York City. Yeah. Uh, but I went down to Miami for college, at, to the University of Miami, and yeah. I stayed there a couple of years after getting my degree to work in media sales industry. But um, I've been a huge sports fan the whole time, and my degree is in journalism. So I, I've been, go, going back all the way to high school, I've been writing about baseball and covering baseball across multimedia. So I got to, and during that stretch, I worked also with Major League Baseball for one season where I attended almost every Marlins game and Mm -hmm. provided some uh, technical support at the ballpark itself. So I just got to experience a lot of the baseball culture down there. Uh, It was very different from what I saw growing up as a Yankees fan, Right, but it was, uh, I I just thought it was fascinating. It's just a very unique market and a very unique situation. And uh, so I've been with Fish Stripes now for about a year and a half. Right. And it's uh, I, I just it's it's something unique. I think it's a unique market and uh, right now going through a bit of a unique struggle. What year were you involved with that? What year were you going to all those games? That, that particular year, that must have been the 2014 season. Okay. Which is not a very good year for the team. No, well, that was a class. You went in some ways. It was a classic Marlins year where they were not bad enough to be the worst team in baseball or anything like that, but not good enough to contend. That year, they were seventy-seven and eighty-five, which is the exact record that they were this year. I mean, if you take a look at the last bunch of years, last four years, year you were there, twenty fourteen, they were seventy-seven and eighty-five. 71 and 91 uh 2016 there were 79 and 82 uh this past year there were 77 and 85 so they're they're not bad enough to be that team that's going to get the first pick overall and be a disaster they did have a 100 loss season in 2013 but they're also not good enough to be a contender certainly in a league where there's it's so top heavy you know they would be, right. they would be a contender in the american league but they can't contend in the national league and and here we are in the middle of just an absolute colossal teardown of this team right and uh going back to when i joined fish stripes in the 2016 season they were in a place where they were poised to be what the baltimore orioles have been like during this decade right. a team that They've been relevant. The Orioles, I'm talking about now, have been relevant for every year. They've made the playoffs about every other year this decade. And they've never been a perfect team. And they've never had the big payroll to spend on. But they've had a good offense. They've had excellent fielding. And that's been able to make up for a lack of starting pitching. And I feel that's where the Marlins were um, just a year and a half ago. During that season, they were buyers at the trade deadline. They added a closer in Fernando Rodney. They added a starting pitcher in Andrew Kashner because they felt they had everything else on the position player side. And now those are the great position players that they've been selling off this offseason. But they felt they 
for the first time in their history, they were close to putting together a sustainable run of competitive teams. And uh, I mean, any Marlins fan knows, and I'm sure you can also see this from a distance, that the the death of Jose Fernandez is just this awful turning point where he was the one star pitcher on the team. And single-handedly, he was a guy that could elevate them from a mediocre team to one that could compete for a wild card just about every year. Like he was that singular talent that they had under control and that in in his impact goes beyond the field because he was easily the most popular player, uh, one of the most likable players. And so much of the direction of the franchise turned on what happened to him, um, even including the decision to sell the team. I think a lot of folks would probably agree that Jeffrey Loria doesn't give up the team if Jose Fernandez is still there and if they feel the team has a sustainable future of at least being competitive consistently. And uh, right now, his loss really accelerated this this teardown. And uh, now they've made the decision to completely strip down and reset in hopes of eventually getting a, a new core together. But that could be five years from now, six years from now. It's really hard to tell. Yeah, I mean, obviously uh, the death of Fernandez, he was one of my favorite players just to watch in baseball. He reminded me, my, my all-time favorite player is Pedro Martinez. And Fernandez had that quality of he could, you know, obviously he was a dynamic pitcher, but had that sort of bravado and that sense of fun. And it was always, I mean, his death was just, you know, ripped the heart out of the team. And it may, and you wonder what it's going to mean for the future of Marlins baseball, period. You know, I don't, I don't know. Look, I, 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 don't believe in ripping a team away. I, I, I think baseball can and should be able to thrive in Miami. It seems like a natural market. Uh, but the effect of that, you know, with the, I, I actually was thinking about the death of Jose Fernandez and the the state of the Marlins last year when you saw that the Colorado Rockies were able to put together a wild card team and I did think, like, what if they had Jose Fernandez and with that just maybe one may pushed for one pitcher at the trade deadline and, you know, one reliever at the deadline. They may have been an 85-86 win team with an ace and what an ace means to the game before and the game afterwards. Uh, right. And, you know, it means you may give the, your bullpen a day off. It means it takes a little bit of pressure off of the bats. It takes a little pressure – off of this pitching staff, you're not going to go on those prolonged losing streaks. And you wonder, I mean, yeah, it's it's tough to say one player is worth eight wins, but you wondered if the presence of Fernandez would have elevated some of the other pitchers in the rotation and what that would have meant for Dan Straley or Jose Arena or you know, even Edinson Volquez. Could that have meant an extra win here, an extra win there, and that would that what that would have meant for the team? Yeah. Even going back before that, though, um, like the ceiling for this current group was, as I mentioned, maybe being the next Baltimore Orioles yeah. of being relevant. But I think there are certain factions of the fan base that aren't satisfied with that, that it wasn't really sustainable um, 
in a market where you were never going to have a super high payroll to keep all those sluggers together for the next few years. And the contract that they gave to Giancarlo Stanton, which is now about exactly three years ago, I mean, that's something that also really threw them off course because they wanted so desperately to to change that reputation. I mean, you mentioned off the top, trading him just like they had other stars in the past, just like they had Miguel Cabrera. And the ownership desperately didn't want those comparisons. They wanted this to be different. They wanted to make sure that we're going to keep this guy that everybody loves and that everybody enjoys watching. And that's why they gave him that 13-year contract at the time. But it just wasn't feasible. And it got to the point where the reason why they're stripping down payroll so desperately right now, and it's such a bad PR hit, is because Stanton's salary was going up $10.5 million just from last year to this year. It was so heavily backloaded. And they have to strip all these players just to keep the payroll the same from last year to this coming year. And that's why it's such so bad optically. Um, A lot because of that contract. Although there was some celebration at the time. There were also realists that were noting that uh, this isn't the franchise and this isn't the time for this franchise to give out a historic contract. And uh, so now it's coming back to burn them. And not not even coming back to burn the people that gave out the contract. It's coming back to burn Derek Jeter and the new group. And I don't know if the criticism is completely fair because that's just the tough situation that he came into. Yeah. But it's still, it's you know what you're getting into. I mean, it's not like, I mean, it's not like this is a, a, a an ownership group that is like, oh, well, the, we're totally caught off guard by the fact that uh you know that there's this horrible this i mean this this catastrophic contract that would that they had to deal with coming off of an MVP season i mean you know i mean it's the first MVP in the history of the Marlins and they have to hand up he can't even celebrate it there he can't even be handed his right. trophy and waved to the crowd he's going to do that in the Bronx right and it just feels like it feels like more of the same. I mean, it it you saw what happened in '97 was just insane because yeah. that was it was it was so appropriate that the team was owned by the guy who ran Blockbuster because that was a rented team. He just rented players in time to win that championship. The '03 yeah. team, which had some more homegrown players, or if not homegrown players, players who they who were rookies as Marlins, like, you know, Lowell and Dontrell Willis came over in in trades, as did Derek Lee, but they were, you know, they weren't stars when they came over. They developed as Marlins. And to see that team, you know, put together that surprising run and have a couple of decent seasons afterwards and then just be stripped mined down to the ground for the 06 season – where they just, I think they had a $20 million payroll or something. That was almost criminal <laughs> what they did there. Yeah. And uh, I, I mean, it's fair to say that some fans are scarred by the fact that this has happened repeatedly. I mean, there are little differences each time. Like after that 2003, uh, the teardown wasn't as immediate as we've seen 
right now and as we saw uh, 20 years ago after the 97 championship. So there are little differences. but And then also uh, five years ago when they opened the new ballpark and immediately after spending on all those improvements via free agency, they dumped those guys onto the Blue yeah. Jays. The repeated behavior is it, it's it's a bad look, even though they've meant these trades have meant something different each time. Like um, just speaking to what recently happened with Stanton, uh, even though the optics are terrible, moving an MVP. The other counter argument to that is that you wouldn't have been able to move him at all if not right now, because he's coming off his best year. He has a track record of all these nagging injuries. Yeah. This was a rare season where. He didn't spend any time on the disabled list, but he had nearly every other year of his career. And uh, even though um, I think anybody trusts him to be a great productive player for another decade or so, it's conceivable that this was his best year. This was his peak value. And the fact that they were able to unload 90% of his contract and at least get two prospects in return, one of them that's – both of them are somewhat wild cards – and neither of them were top prospects with the Yankees. The fact that they were able to even make a trade, it gives them a chance in the future. One, by just cleansing the payroll, which was on the books for another decade after this. And two, just giving them players that have a shot to contribute something over the next few years without being paid much at all. So it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I understand why nationally people have been so critical of the team. But this was this felt like the time where they really needed a full reset. They're in a very different spot now than they were even a year and a half ago, and it's a painful time. But um, doing a full reset right now seems to make the most sense from a baseball sense going forward, even if it's going to be painful in the short term. Yeah, that's a great point, and and I I made a a, a similar plea. You know, I'm a I'm a lifelong Boston Red Sox fan, and there were rumors mm-hmm. in the summertime that the Red Sox, maybe not during the season, but uh, in the off season, would be eyeing Stanton because even though you know the Sox have won back to back division titles, but they severely miss the power of Ortiz and Hanley Ramirez is not supplying it, and there's a lot of Sox mm-hmm. fans who I know were saying, you know, trade. Stanton and I was saying, well, first of all, it would probably cost you. I didn't realize how little it would cost in terms of prospects, but I thought it would cost them one of their starting outfielders, like Bradley Jr., Betts, or Ben Attendi. And I said, I don't want that. Those guys are under control. Mm-hmm. They're young. And I kept pointing out to my friends that in 2012, 2013, 2015, and 2016, especially 2015, he missed significant number of games each of those years. And I right. kept saying, didn't and I? And, and this is a terrible comparison in terms of the talent, but I kept saying, did we learn nothing from Pablo Sandoval, who had a history of injuries? The Sox gave him the sun, the moon, the stars, and and Haley's comet, and now he's being paid to not play for the Red Sox. And I said, I don't want a guy going. You know, he'll he'll get a couple of years, and then he'll be in his thirties. And, and be under contract until the heat death of the universe. And for with rising costs each year. And, mm-hmm. you know, he played 74 games in 2015. He played 100. He played a less. 
<clears throat> he's played in less than 120 games in uh, three of the last five seasons. And you're right. right that if you're going to do this and most importantly dump all that salary, you had to do it in the one year where he played 159 games and made nearly 700 plate appearances. Right. And, I mean, I guess the other way to look at this is the other reason for a reset is that the farm system was totally washed out. Over the last couple of years, they, Marlins have been – consensus one of the two or three worst farm systems in all baseball just not a lot of high upside guys and just not a a lot of actual major league talent period in any level of the farm they had this core that they built for the last few years but all that goes back to drafts that were almost a decade ago they drafted stanton in 2007 they drafted christian yelich in 2011 And they just have done a terrible job in drafts and international signings ever since then, over the last handful of years. So there's been no wave of reinforcements. And when they were thinking they were competitive as recently as 2016, they just didn't have quality prospects to trade, to upgrade. So if you're going to be this team that's semi-competitive for a number of years, when you get to the middle of the summer and you want to be a buyer, you need to have ammunition to buy with. And their player development has just been so awful over the last few years, at least in terms of the results, that they just had no way to make upgrades in season. The only way this team was going to get better and contend consistently going forward is if they spent in free agency and they just didn't have the revenue to do that. Right. So that's uh, – and at least with some of the other trades, not – so much the Stanton one, but D Gordon and more so Marcelo Zuna, they've added actual prospects that can make an impact and a good number of prospects. They got three in exchange for D Gordon. They got four of them in exchange for Marcelo Zuna and they needed both the depth and the quality, the quality and the quantity to give themselves a chance in the future. And they're starting to do that. I'm going to say something that sounds almost bizarre and sacrilegious, but if I were the if I were the um, Cardinals, uh, I would be thrilled with how the trade market worked out for them. That they were obviously they made a big push to trade for Stanton, and if that had worked, Stanton would be in Cardinal. And quite frankly, that's where I thought he was going to end up in St. Louis or San Francisco. That's where I thought he was going to go, but he turned down both of those places. He ends up with the Yankees. Um, you look at Ozuna, Ozuna is not eligible for free agency until 2020. So the St. Louis has him under control for the next three years. He is younger than Stanton. He has a better health record than Stanton. And yeah, he strikes out too much, um, to be sure, but you still get a guy and, and his contract, you know, is... He's made three million last year. He'll probably, you know, obviously he'll get a spike in his in his uh, value over you know arbitration and leading up to free agency. But they're right. not going to have to deal with if they they only get two or three solid years out of Ozuna, they'll probably be solid years, and they won't have to deal with this behemoth of a contract. It's one of the things that makes the Cardinals a smart team, and that they walked away from. 
you know, Pujols, their their Hall of Famer, they're their most popular player on the team off of a world championship and let him, you know, let the Angels deal with him with a 10-year deal. And I firmly believe that the Angels are going to DFA uh, Albert Pujols and he's going to wind up going back to the Cardinals and getting his like 3,000th hit and everything in a Cardinal uniform on the Angels' dime. So I think that the Ozuna trade for the Cardinals, now I, they got back Sandy Alcantara, a uh, kid named Sierra, a kid named Gail. I, don't, I can't tell you anything about these guys other than what I read in Baseball America. And who knows? Sometimes prospects turn out great. Sometimes they turn out to be rotten. But I think in many ways – the Cardinals may have dodged a bullet. They got a good, solid, right-handed, power-hitting outfielder that they desperately needed, and they don't have to deal with this insane contract. Right. And so from the Marlins' perspective, what we're curious about is what Christian Yelich would bring back if he was traded. Because they've they've traded the MVP outfielder on the ridiculous contract. They've traded – the all-star left fielder who was going year to year in arbitration. So without much guaranteed at all to him and Yelich is in the middle because he has a longer term contract. He's for the next five years, he's under control. It's four more years in a team option on this really team friendly contract that he signed a right. few years ago. Well, they have to trade him though. I mean, so, you can't, in a situation like this, it's not like, what are you going to say? You're going to lose the will of the fans? They're already there. I mean, I'm going to, I'm speaking for you, I guess, a little bit here, but you can't do this halfway. I mean, if you're going to do this, you might as well just tear the thing down to the ground. I mean, I mean, Yelich has value now. And there are teams like San Francisco, like Los Angeles, like the Mets, you know, teams that have, you know, that have visions of a pennant dancing in their head that could use a you know left-handed hitter with power with speed with good average good ops under team control for a while and you especially if you look around like the american league there's so many teams on the bubble that are like well they're between 82 and 85 wins and 85 wins is probably a wild card team if you think a player like yelich uh, I'm not 100% sure what his war total is, but I mean, if you think about, he was, last year was about a four war player. If you think someone like him is the difference between going to the postseason or not, yeah, you got to make that deal. And the, I mean, if you're the Marlins, don't you have to say, okay, uh, Rio Milto, I, I, I butchered his name, sorry. Um, uh, Rio, yeah, Rio, Prado, yeah. Castro. Yelich, you know, I mean, everyone didn't nail anything's not nailed down. You might as well just trade him. Right. What makes Yelich a little different from the other outfielders is that there was the urgency to move those right. other two with Danton, with all the money he was going to make, and with Ozuna because he had fewer years of control left. So you wanted to send him somewhere that wasn't nervous about his free agency. And it felt like he had to go this offseason. And because of Yelich's deal, like contractually on paper, there's not the urgency to move him. But he, is, he wants to be moved, all indications are. On the night that the Stanton deal was done, he, <laughs> he tweeted about it. And he just tweeted an emoji, the thinking emoji in response to the news that everybody was able to, to wow. decipher 
that he wasn't he was suspicious of what was going on and and since then there've been more concrete reports about him being unhappy here and um well just the fact that he was close friends with both of these guys that were all three of the guys that were traded this offseason Stanton and Ozuna and Gordon all of them were friends all of them had been together in the starting lineup for the last 3 years so he's clearly unhappy and he will actually meet face to face with some of the front office this week um which is somewhat of a reminder of how the events were described about Stanton uh, a couple months ago that he also met with the front office to hear from them personally what their plan was and that he came away with that meeting um pretty resolute that he wanted to get out of there so the yellow trade could come soon it's just that the Marlins really need to get that trade right because the combination of his performance and his track record and his age, he just turned 26, means that they really need to get more for him than they got for either Stanton or Ozuna. They need to actually get like a surefire future major leaguer. One of the, They need to get a top 50 prospect, but really more of a top 20, 25 prospect in the whole sport. They need... Uh, someone that at least has all-star potential because um, as I said, their farm system was in terrible straits just a few months ago and they still have a lot of room to improve if they want to assemble a new core and stay relevant um, a few years yeah, down the you road. Know, the only, the only bit of leverage that the, the Marlins have other than the fact that he's under their control is if they say, Hey, how would you like to be guaranteed to be in the all-star game for the next bunch of years? Because they're going to have to get at least one representative from the Marlins each year. It looks more and more like, hey, Christian, uh, if you stay the next three years, you'll be a three-time all-star because there's no one else on this team who's going to make the all-star team. Yeah, yeah, and I'll double-check right now. I think for all his production – that's right. He actually yeah. hasn't been an yeah. all-star yet. So that particular like benefit appeals to him at all, then I guess that's part of the argument. But I, I mean, I say that only you know, with my tongue a little bit in cheek. I mean, the value that he would have as, as a trade ship, that he's going to be 26 years old. As I said, he's got power. He's a gold glove winner. He's a silver slugger winner. He's got some speed. He's a good all-around hitter. And you know he's a he's a good center fielder. the The appeal of someone like him and what he could bring back. I mean, you could argue prospect wise, he's going to bring back more than Stanton and Ozuna combined because of all those other factors. Right. And if you've made the you know if you've got to tear down the team and they've torn down the team, and you've already have a pissed off fan base. Excuse my language, right? That um, you know, you're you already have a fan base that you're expecting to have, you know, friends and family uh, show up to each of the games, and that's about it. Then the the presence of Yelich is not going to make much of a difference. And if you if you could throw in two or three good young players into their system, and you've torn down for money, now you could build up the farm. It may be unpopular, but it may be the best thing to do 
if you want to be a contender by 2021 or 2022. And the news out today um, is actually more about JT Realmuto, the yeah. catcher. And it's interesting about him, at least through his representatives, indicating that he wants to get out of here too and not be a part of the rebuild. And I pose an interesting question um, as to who actually has more trade value, whether it's Yelich or Real Muto, who I'd argue is maybe one of the, the most underrated right. players at any position across the sport. He's about the same age that Yelich mm-hmm. is, and he, has, he hasn't signed his extension, so he has a couple less years of control, but he's a catcher. And it's so rare that young catchers, starting quality catchers, and he's a far above average for a starting catcher, become available. It's so rare that these guys get on the trade market. And he just has such a unique skill set where he's all, pretty much a similar athlete to Christian Yelich. He's a guy that adds a lot of value as a base runner, even though he's at a position that's known for being like a liability on the bases. And he's someone that gets a lot of hits and has solid plate discipline. And he's another guy that um, and if they're going to go full bore into this rebuild, then they should really be shopping both of them and moving the trade both of them right now. Uh, it, but really either one, it should be bringing back a, a package that has a lot of names and that has at least one of those really premium prospects in there. Uh, so, between those two, between a great center fielder and a really great catcher, there should be a lot of teams interested. And that's the bigger thing. It's just getting contending teams to bid against each other until one of them makes a really sweet offer. Yeah, and I think you could find yourself in a situation where you know teams know the value of you know the, of Moto, especially if you got a power hitting athletic catcher who's in his mid twenties. And you have a potential all-star left-handed hitting outfielder like Christian Yelich. Each one of those should get you – I mean, they should be – I mean, there's two ways you could do it. You could do what the White Sox did a few years ago when they traded away some of their top play, you know, their top trade chips and got back some of the best young – you know, some of the best prospects in the game. Or you could do what the Astros did, which is just go for quantity. Just try to flood them, your farm system – and when they were trading away everything that wasn't nailed down, they were making sure they got three or four players in each trade. And it was like it was like they had another draft. And they just brought right. in all these play, you know, these double single A and double A players that they could develop. And we all saw, you know, between you know, the the disastrous twenty twelve and twenty thirteen season, by twenty seventeen they they win the World Series. Uh, I'm not saying that's gonna happen with the Marlins, but you almost have to do that for this other reason. And and right now the Nationals are the team. I mean, they should be lining up their postseason roster now. I mean, no one else is going to beat them in the NL East. But mm-hmm. Atlanta and Philadelphia are already in the middle of their rebuild. They've already done their teardown. They've already brought in some good young players. And it wouldn't surprise me that if Washington – it wouldn't surprise me if Atlanta contends. And, and and Philadelphia has some talent too. So even if there's a teardown with the with the Marlins, they're about two or three years away from even an opening 
in the National League East. So what's the point of keeping Riyamoto and whose name I still can't pronounce no matter how many times I attempt to say it, or Yelich? I mean, you, you might as well just put three sticks of dynamite in and blow everything up in the hope that 2021, the Nationals, the Diamondbacks, the Rockies, some of these other teams have fallen back to earth, and there's an opportunity for either the division or the wild card. Well, one area that I think the new ownership group really deserves their criticism is that they've they've been very short-sighted with the things they've some of the things they've done, but more about the vision that they've projected in that they really want to make a profit immediately on a franchise that they took over with hundreds of millions of dollars in debt. They've been really consistent with this not saying it directly, but that they're so concerned with making money instantly, even over taking over a team in such a dire position. And uh, that's why – so let, let me – where was I going with that? It's that they want to keep – that they're a little hesitant to do a full rebuild on another level because they don't want – if that risks their bottom line too much, if they don't have any recognizable faces on the field – then they worried that the whatever attendance and TV ratings they had with you know a mediocre team that those would dip a lot further without anybody. It's going to though. And, it's going to. I mean, how can they? How right. can they not know that it's going to? Right. And but so the, and this is something that uh, it came up more earlier in the offseason with Shohei Otani, the Japanese mm-hmm. pitcher and hitter, two way guy that signed with the Angels, and that the Marlins were one of the only teams that didn't even try to get him they didn't even they had, there was that infamous questionnaire that teams filled out and submitted to Otani and his representatives explaining why they would be a good organization for him and that the Marlins were one of just a couple teams that didn't even bother trying right. to get him it was a player that everybody could afford but in the other wrinkle is that a reported concern that the posting fee, a one-time posting fee, a $20 million posting fee for a potential star player kind of scared them away that they didn't try for Otani because they didn't want to pay $20 million up front to his former team to bring him over. And so it's, it's something that they don't say directly, but it's so obvious that, they're really concerned with the bottom line and from the get-go. Even on a team they don't know is going to be good, they want to do everything possible to make money through through what should be a, a full rebuild. They're, they want to rebuild but make enough money, and uh, it's uh, they're really doing a sloppy job of trying to toe that line, at least publicly. Publicly, it's it's been a disaster with them trying to – you know, get everything they want at the same time. So you, I guess that brings me to a question here, which is, I guess, a bigger, grander question. You know, the the Marlins fans thought it couldn't get worse than Huizenga and it couldn't get worse than Loria. And it reminds me a little bit here in L.A. when Fox was owning the Dodgers and the fans just hated Fox. They hated the way they managed the team. And when the team was put up to for sale, Dodger fans were like, Oh, as long as it's anyone but Fox, we're in good shape. And it turned out to be Frank right. McCourt, who all but destroyed the team. And, in fact, bankrupted the L.A. Dodgers, which is unbelievable when you stop and think about the, those words in that order. 
I'm thinking about in terms of all these years where Marlon fans were saying, oh, anyone but Loria, anyone but Loria, anyone but Loria. Well, they got someone other than Loria. And is this, are they better or worse off? Or is it too early to tell? I think it's too early to tell. And I lean towards that they'll be better off because really the Marlins fan experience is seeing your owners go out of their way to do such embarrassing things. Under Loria, there was a time where they, where the ownership was suing some season ticket holders because they were trying to obligate those season ticket holders to pay for multiple seasons at the same time and that those ticket holders were given a, a different understanding of a contract they agreed on and ownership was going out of its way to trying to like scrape every last dollar from the fans that actually wanted the team wanted to see the team and there's just a lot of examples of hit of personally the Loria going out of his way to embarrass them both on the field with some of the transactions that they were making, but just on a personal level where he just seemed to have no connection with what the fans wanted and really no consideration for what the fans wanted. And that's always something that team that ownership and team sports is, is tricky about is, you know, trying to squeeze every dollar you can while doing it really humanely and doing it with dignity. And under Loria, they just didn't do anything with dignity. With And this new group, it, it's a little too soon to tell because, again, they were put in this difficult situation a lot by what happens under Loria and some other things they couldn't control. But they were given what was an unmanageable payroll situation. Um, and the one thing you can hold against them is that, by all accounts, this new ownership group hasn't done like its end of the bargain of actually raising the funds that they expected to have that perhaps there was an impression that they gave to the commissioner's office that they would have more money up front to be able to avoid a teardown um, immediately, that they would be able to sustain a certain payroll if it made good baseball sense. Um, so just some little cost cutting moves that they've made up front include when they dismissed some former players from the front office, which included Jeff Conine, Andre Dawson, Tony Perez. So a couple of Hall of Famers in there that that reportedly they were cut loose because they were making a, a few thousand dollars more than the team wanted them to. And that essentially they split up over what amounted to just like an insignificant amount of money. But so the upfront, some of this cost cutting has been has been really embarrassing. And uh, I guess that's it, that's been a really tough look. But and it hasn't fully impacted their baseball decisions all that much early on. And um, as long as they try to keep that separate, they try to recognize what the baseball team needs and they try to operate responsibly within their own limitations. Um, and then they just try to have a better relationship with the fans themselves, then I, I think that gives the team a better shot at success than what they had before. Yeah, I just think some of the optics that they had could not possibly have been worse. You know, I mean, sure. dropping Perez and Conine and Dawson just seems petty. 
you know, for what it will cost, it will cost less to sign a utility infielder than to have the only guy who was, who started on both Marlins championship teams, plus two former hall of famers with, or two hall of famers with ties to the Marlins. You know, Dawson played briefly with the team and Tony Perez briefly managed the team. You know, it just, the optics of that are terrible. The optics of coming right in and not just dealing Stanton, but like, doing it in a way where there was no communication with him. You know, the Jeter's not at the meetings, but he's at the, you know, he's at the football game. There's, I mean, some of these things are, um, you know, may not be that important for the day-to-day operation, but if you're trying to win over the fans and you're trying to win over, mm-hmm. hey, things are going to be different here, uh, they couldn't possibly, at least from where I'm sitting, just in terms of, optics it couldn't possibly get off to a worse start than they've had right and so here's the interesting interpretation of what's going on uh there's a there's some obvious things that we've seen where they're valuing the dollar over everything else and it's not helping them uh but it's also possible that internally they're just so committed to divorcing themselves from loria from knowing how unpopular loria was and really going out of their way to make sure that everything changes, even these little things like these front office advisors. And uh, they did the same thing with the regional broadcast crew. They dismissed their great play-by-play man, Rich Waltz, who had been there for 13 years. Little changes that were unpopular and that really don't make a big dent on the bottom line. But the other the interpretation is that maybe they're just – they want to divorce themselves as far as possible, like in all aspects of the organization. They want to leave nothing behind that was that existed before they got there. Um, I guess with this understanding that the fans didn't like it, and so I, they're partially right in that regard that the fans were unhappy with Loria, um, and it it's hard to really know. Like it's too early to really know what the intention is behind what they're doing and uh, how much they want to start a new chapter and how much they just want to scrape every dollar for themselves. It's, it's a little unclear and that's why I think that it's a cop out, but it just seems too early to judge um, because, well, they haven't played any games yet. And I think we'll find out more once that starts. I almost feel, and and it's going to sound like I'm making a joke here, but I'm actually being 70% serious. Um, I I almost think the Marlins should go into 2018 and take a look at who's going to be on. Whenever you start to approach spring training, there's always a slew of players who are, there's a glut of players who are unsigned. Like there are just too many right. utility infielders. There's too many first base. Adrian Gonzalez just got uh, you know tr- dumped to the Braves, and the Braves just cut him. There's a, you know players who are going to be recognizable names who just no one's offered them a job. Part of me, if I were the Marlins, would say, "Hey, who are the most recognizable names who can't get a job?" And offer them a two million dollar contract. So here, you 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 get a major league deal. Come to Miami. Um, and maybe kickstart your career again. You, know, you you have a starting job. You can show everyone you're a starter. And that right. when you look at the lineup, 
it's not a bunch of guys from where's I forget their their minor league team used to be in New Orleans. What is their their AAA team in now? Oh, it's still in New Orleans. Orleans. Okay, yeah. I, there, there's been a shift. I just assumed I was incorrect. Okay, yeah. So um, that you know, it's not a bunch of guys from New Orleans, but like, oh, check. There's there's uh, Adrian Gonzalez. I know him, and oh, there's Pablo Sandoval. I know him, and and they're they're all over the hill, you know. But at least right. for one year, if they're going to stink, at least stink with a bunch of major leaguers who um, you've heard of. And keep the players. Don't push players and do what the Mets have done is bring players up too fast and just say, you know, our, we got a bunch of guys or these are guys are, you know, here holding the fort. And the best case scenario was the Red Sox basically did that in 2013, the year after the Bobby V disaster. Uh, they brought in a bunch of guys for short term solutions and they wound up winning the World Series. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't think that will happen with this, but if you look around and say, hey, there's a bunch of veterans looking to prove themselves, looking to show they're still major leaguers, I I don't know. Part of me thinks that's at least something you can sell. That's something they've done in moderation under the previous owners. If you go back all the way to the start of the team in 1993, Charlie Huff, a knuckleballer, was their starter at the beginning. And he was he's still the oldest player ever in franchise history. They actually had him for two years at the beginning when they knew they weren't actually going to compete. And But more recently, someone like Ichiro was coming off a really bad yeah. year when they signed him, which was actually three years ago. And he had one bad year, one good year, where he got his 3,000th hit and uh, one bad year after that. And they, and they signed him essentially because they wanted him to wear their uniform for that 3000th hit yeah. which he did. That was and he and if I remember correctly he kept he was there was like uh he couldn't get that hit at home and, and that, yeah he's he in Colorado, Colorado it was yeah. triple off the wall. I was actually I was at a game in Oakland uh watching an A's game talk about a, a place where it's easy to get tickets. And um, they flashed that on the, the the monitor, and the place was started applauding. So, all right. Okay. Well, hey, um, we got some more stuff to talk about, Eli. But um, why don't you tell people where they can find you? Well, you can find me on Twitter uh, at Real Eli, which is real, and then my first name E L Y. I know I spell it a little differently than most. Um, but I also operate all the social media channels for Fish Stripes itself for the website. And those are, you can find those at Fish Stripes, just those two words together without a space, as the Marlins coverage uh, from SB Nation. And uh, so actually, you'll find me more active on the team's official account than on my personal account. But uh, I kind of alternate back and forth between those two and uh obviously all the articles that we publish are on fishstripes.com well it's a great place to get your marlins news and i've always been intrigued by the marlins because i like the fact that this weird franchise has won two titles and yet seem to have gained no goodwill from those titles but that's going to be a topic of the, the next part of our conversation so uh thank you eli for being part of this episode of the podcast go to sellybaseball.com like me on facebook subscribe to itunes soundcloud youtube twitter stitcher instagram 
I'm everywhere. It could be old school. Send me an email at info at sullybaseball.com. The music, as always, is by Ted Thacker and Patrick Kaliski. Talking fish with Eli Sussman of Fish Stripes. This has been the Sully Baseball Podcast for the 19th day of December 2017. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully.